Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the New York Historical Society. I am Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see such a packed audience in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I uh, want to make sure that those of you who have not yet seen the Armory Show at 100 uh, race to do so. This is its last week. It will be closing next Sunday. It's um, it's an extraordinary exhibition on the art, with the art, that introduced New York and the rest of the United States uh, uh, to modern art, to the modern art movement. Um, I do want to mention, if you're a member, uh, you have free admission to the museum today, but you still need to pick up your ticket at, uh, at the membership desk. Um, I also want to uh, remind you not to miss our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, uh, you can pick up a flyer on the way out to get the full schedule of great classic films and extraordinary speakers. Today's program, Before the Fall, From the Roaring Twenties to the Crash of 29, is part of our Byron Wien lecture series on financial history. I'd like to thank Mr. Wien, as always, for his great guidance, for his generous support of this institution over many, many years, even uh, before my arrival at the New York Historical Society, and for leading today's program as moderator. The program will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members, as always, will be invited to approach standing microphones in the left and right aisles. We do this so that everyone in the audience can hear your question and the speakers on the stage can hear it as well. Uh, I'd like to note that books by our speakers are available in our museum store. You can purchase them following the program. There will, however, not be a book signing this morning. We are so very thrilled that our great trustee, Jim Grant, is back with us this morning for today's program. Mr. Grant is not only a New York Historical Society trustee, but also the founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer a twice-monthly journal of the investment markets. He began his career in journalism in 1972 at the Baltimore Sun. He joined the staff of Barron's in 1975, where he originated the current Yield column. He's the author of numerous books on finance and financial history, including Bernard Baruch, The Adventures of a Wall Street Legend, and Mr. Market Miscalculates. His writing has also appeared in various periodicals, including the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. We're also delighted to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, Amity Schles. She's the director of the George W. Bush Institute's Economic Growth Project. Ms. Schles also teaches economic history in the MBA program at the Stern School of Business at NYU. She's written for Bloomberg, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal, where she was an editorial board member, as well as for the New Yorker, Fortune, and Foreign Affairs. Ms. Schles is also a columnist for Forbes and the author of, most recently, Coolidge, a comprehensive biography of America's 30th president. Her book, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books to read during a financial crisis. Our moderator this morning is Byron R. Ween, the Vice Chairman of Blackstone Advisory Partners, LP, where he acts as senior advisor to both the firm and its clients in analyzing economic, social, and political trends. 
Prior to joining Blackstone, Mr. Ween was Chief Investment Strategist for Pequot Capital and Chief U.S. Investment Strategist at Morgan Stanley for 21 years. In 2006, Mr. Ween was named one of the 16 most influential people on Wall Street by New York Magazine. And in 2008, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the New York Society of Security Analysts. As always, before we begin our program, I ask that you please switch off anything that makes a noise like a cell phone. Our official photographer, New York Historical Society photographer, is here, and he's the only one who's allowed to take photographs this morning. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Okay, so I asked myself this morning, why are 316 people coming to hear us? And I came up with the following answer. They all want to know whether the period we're living through right now is going to be like the 1920s, and it's going to be followed by the 1930s, so that a decade from now, none of us will be able to afford a ticket to come in and hear people like <laughs> us talk. So I thought we might start out by asking each of you to describe the context in the post-war, post-World War I, remember the war to end all wars, uh, period. What was America like in 1920? What were the attitudes of the people? What were the historical forces? And we'll, we'll explore whether or not there's some parallels between that period and the decade we're currently living through. Emily, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Byron. <laughs> the period after World War I was a, a troubled, challenged period. Uh, there was inflation, but the government was not acknowledging it. One, uh, there was great labor unrest. Uh, the soldiers had come back from Europe and seen the revolutions there and thought maybe there should be some revolution here. Uh, there was unemployment. There were shortages. You remember Herbert Hoover was food administrator at the end of the war. So there were, um, and uh, there was an expectation uh, that, thing, that the war had been a boom and things might get worse. Uh, in um, my Coolidge book, I describe how Coolidge, as governor, faced a wicked police strike um, that uh, policemen deserved more money. The police stations had rats who chewed on the policemen's helmets, um, but the strike left the city of Boston um, in chaos, and Coolidge, as governor, had to call out the guard. That was not unusual for American cities just after the war. The same thing happened in Seattle. So the question is, what will policymakers do in the context of this? By the way, prices, part of that inflation, were up uh, quite a bit, so the policemen couldn't afford uh, what they need to think, think about it that way. You have a disrupted situation, an uncertain future, but also some confidence because we won the war. Jim? I have very vivid memories of 1920. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Amity, um, if memory serves, which it does ever so infrequently, but this might be true, uh, I think the Boston police had not had a raise since about 1880. Now, such was the stability of the dollar uh, that this was not thought to be so unusual until the great inflation that followed the Great War. Uh, 
There had been inflations before, but never an inflation in a country in which the currency was defined as a fixed weight of gold. So this was an anomaly, and it was a troubling one. Uh, as anomalous as the inflation was the very fact that it had followed a war on form, uh, what followed wars uh, were deflations. Uh, that had happened after the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, and it happened after the War of 1812 in this country. Uh, there had been a deflationary period after the Civil War in this country. Uh, so coming out of 1918, people were set up for a bust. And lo and behold, uh, as so often happens in finance, uh, expectations were confounded, and there was a great inflationary boom. And some prospered and some didn't. Some, resentful, some were resentful, like the Boston police, and some were giddy, like the speculators. Uh, and then uh, come 1920, uh, when it was not expected, uh, came the deflationary bust. And, of course, there was no press release announcing its arrival. Uh, these things uh, come stealthily. And only after the cyclical event did the official scorekeepers determine that January 1920 uh, was the peak of that inflationary cycle. And what followed was a bust that uh, bottomed again according to subsequent soundings by the National Bureau of Economic Research in the summer of 1921. So it was an 18-month depression. Unscripted, uh, but it happened. Can you just uh, talk to us a little bit about what was going on in Europe at the time and whether that was having an influence? I'm thinking about the Weimar, I'm thinking about the German repatriation obligations. Did that have any impact on the U.S. at that time? Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, it had been a world war, and uh, neither Amity nor I nor Byron has mentioned that uh, more lethal than the war was the influenza pandemic. Um, there was an economist named Thomas Gregory who, in about 1920, pronounced that the world was in the worst shape it had ever been in. It's <laughs> always in the worst shape. Right, right. That's an, that's an economist for you. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> Uh, but certainly, I mean, Europe uh, was uh, in such a bad way, um, uh, I guess that is chronically the case. Um, but yes, it was, it was a world of sin and sorrow and troubles. I think we could add, you know, to give you the political context, yeah. uh, there was a new movement that looked like the future, the progressive movement, and it wanted uh, more health care, for example. It wanted to nationalize utilities, which were the engine of economic growth. Everyone could see what electricity would be to that decade, the 20s. Uh, and it was small, but on the march. It had momentum. It was really uh, an offshoot of the Republican Party. It divided the Republican Party, as we'd seen you know, back in the past with bull moose. So people thought, well, maybe the progressives will win in the 20s. Uh, and, well, the Democrats, that was Wilson, people were tired, and the Republicans were split. Uh, so that's where it all was. And therefore, how you campaign in 1920 in either party or the Progressive Party, that, that was a tough decision. The Republican Party, in the end, in 1920, decided to go hard. They weren't squishy. What does that mean? What does that mean? They said um, it, 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 it was farther to the right or more conservative than a lot of people had expected. People thought of Republicans as progressives. The best way you encapsulate it is Warren Harding's inaugural address when he did win as the hard Republican. He said, uh, no more experiments. All we need is 
the best thing is efficient administration of our current system. Mm. No, no, no wild, dreamy uh, projects. It, it's very different from what either party would say today because it's just political uh, rule that, that whatever party you're in, you're supposed to be fun, energetic, and talk about new products and change. Uh, so no change. And when you think about what Harding um, Coolidge, being his vice presidential candidate at that time, c- campaigned on, they campaigned on normalcy. That's a terrible word. When, when you hear normalcy in high school, right, and you, it's, there it is on your, you're racing through history, your junior year, right, what does normalcy sound like? Oh, they wanted normalcy after the war. They wanted everyone to be normal and stupid, right? We're, we're intellectual and clever and different. Um, but when I went back and looked at what it was for the Coolidge book, and I know Jim can talk about this too, I found they meant something different. They said, we want the political economy, the market, or politics to work within certain normal parameters so we can have less economic uncertainty and have more fun. Uh, starting companies, for example, and Coolidge uh, was a stickler for English. He didn't really like that word normalcy. He thought maybe Harding wasn't using it appropriately. So Coolidge just said, our campaign in 1920 is for less economic uncertainty. That that pleased him better. You know, uh, something else that was very much in the the, uh, foreground of this time was, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution in, uh, in Russia. And uh, this informed the, uh, the politics of America as it did of Europe. There's a terrific uh, 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 sense of excitement on the part of the progressives in Seattle. It's a general strike in Seattle, the first general strike in America, along about 1920. Um, and um, uh, you know, people thought this might be the next big thing. And uh, you know, looking back, we can see that it was not the next big thing, certainly for America. Well, it was indeed a big thing for many generations, but it was not America's cause. But uh, at the time, it was not so certain. Uh, Citibank had uh, uh, Frank Vanderlip, the president of Citibank, had had a had his thought that that Russia was going to be a, a terrific opportunity. And he put branches all over uh, Russia, and, uh, well, well, and you... not for the first time did the Citibank. <laughs> Go ahead. Or right down. Yeah. I, I, I think Russia then is as China has been now. Um, we don't know, or maybe 10 years ago, they didn't really know what would happen in Russia, but the, the, the scale of it appealed to them. To people who like the economy of scale, a big project is always better. Wow, how many time zones was Russia? How many Fords, and you think of Ford Motor Company was in there too, made tractors. How many Fords can you sell there? What that market is. And, and nobody knew yet what would become of Bolshevik Russia. So you, you can't be as hard on them as, as you might be because we didn't know. And it, it divided up. Um, many companies were excited about Russia. Some politicians didn't like Russia. Some didn't know what to make of it. Herbert Hoover was disgusted with the Bolshevik Revolution because he had businesses there that were trashed by the revolutionaries, and they broke delicate mechanisms for ceramics that he had, you know, his companies were trashed. Um, But other politicians thought, well, maybe we should have at some point relations with Russia. We don't now because they are so big and because they are such a market. Well, and companies bid for the concessions to do that. I've always thought that there was kind of a transcendental soft issue that colored a decade. And in the, um, in the 1920s, it was prohibition. Um, 
you know, I think that that really had an impact on the American spirit. I know it had an impact on my parents. They were thinking about having a kid all during the 1920s, but they didn't have me until prohibition was repealed. They weren't going <laughs> to. They weren't going to bring a kid into the world who couldn't drink when he got home. Um, did prohibition influence the country at all? Did it affect the American spirit the way I think it did? Certainly affected. Would have affected my spirit. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, in my reading and study of, of, the, of the early 20s, I, I thought, okay, um, uh, I read Daniel, I think, Ockrent's book, Last Call, which is a terrific social uh, and partially an economic history of, the, of prohibition. And, uh, you know, the, the, the consolidated, if you can think of the consolidated industry of, uh, of, of bars, saloons, uh, breweries, uh, distribution networks, uh, distillers. It was a not inconsiderable portion of the 1920 GNP. So at a stroke, the government says no more. And that surely must have had some macroeconomic, a word we ought to come back to because then it didn't exist, uh, but as some, it ought to have some uh, comprehensive effect on American enterprise, but I can't find the evidence for it. And I think a gr so so much of what had happened above ground went, as it were, below ground. That I think that the I think the economic effects of prohibition were rather muted. Amandi, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, oh well, Coolidge uh, took a pragmatic approach. His father suggested he be a pharmacist, which meant someone who who gave out licensed liquor, and he, he thought that was a little tacky. Um, I, I think uh, many people thought the pro whole prohibition story was a bother, and that it, um, they didn't like the way it, when people break the law, uh, that erodes the rule of law. That was his position, for example. He was of counsel to a brewery. Uh, one of the ways he made money was through liquor, and the town where he worked, I'm just using this president as an example, Northampton, Massachusetts, was a licensed town. That meant they could sell liquor. Remember, there was prohibition before prohibition in American towns and cities. They could be dry or wet. And uh, so he just thought it was a bother, as did Andrew Mellon, whose wife took delivery of liquor off boats that would come in uh, to the cottages um, on Rhode Island, right? Mm. Uh, uh, it was a bother. It cost a lot of money for the Coast Guard to police this. You can see it in the Treasury budget in the 20s. I would say, um, because we have television and boardwalk and so on, prohibition looms large, and because of our own marijuana debates, I don't really see it deeply being the story of the 20s. More likely, the, I like the Ockrent book very much that Jim mentioned, but I also like Middletown, uh, the book by two sociologists studying Muncie, Indiana. And if you read um, that book, it's all about the excitement of the decade for people, and most of it isn't about liquor. It's about getting an automobile. So uh, if you want to say what happened in the 20s, I think the automobile was a bigger story, say, than liquor. Well, yeah, but there was one aspect of prohibition. It really did um, encourage some people to deviate from the law, to go to speakeasies and that sort of thing. There, there was an overlay of immorality that uh, did pervade society at that time. And you know what else, you know what else was, was, uh, was part and parcel of that uh, somewhat cynical attitude towards the law uh, uh, was the, the federal income tax uh, had the same effect on many people. Um, uh, in a conventional business transaction, there is a buyer and a seller, and you know one, you're the other. 
you shake hands, there is, uh, it's, it's a voluntary transaction. Now comes the income tax. And uh, it is no longer voluntary. It's, 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 it's compulsory. It is, it is a degree. There's, a, there's something about it that got under the skin of many Americans. And, and they came to see that it was a little bit all right uh, to trim uh, and to hedge and to indeed cheat. And uh, uh, the, who, Frank Sullivan's uh, art, uh, what's the title of this? this multi-volume history of the art times, I think. Anyway, Frank Sullivan has, has a, is, it, is it Frank Sullivan audience? Mark. Mark Sullivan, thank you. Mark Sullivan has a wonderful couple of pages on the effect of the new income tax on, on Americans' attitudes towards the law. And it was, I think, so it very much reminds me of your observations on prohibition. And that relates, I mean, if you look, what was the, the income tax was a young fellow in this period. Uh, it's from the teens, the, the federal income tax, right? And it, it started around uh, six or seven, and it went up into the 70s all of a sudden. People didn't like that change too fast. Uh, nobody was quite sure about the treatment of capital gains that was being adjudicated. So if the courts weren't sure, you shouldn't be necessarily so sure in your firm how, whether you would pay that cap gains tax. Well, dividends were, I believe, untaxed, but this was also had to be remained to be clarified formally. Well, that's an awful lot of uncertainty, and you had the feeling that the other party, just as Jim and Byron are saying, the government wasn't so sure itself about this levy. Right. And so, therefore, you weren't so sure about the government and its requirements for it. You go back, and um, Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, much money... Uh, flowed to liquor, and much money flowed uh, to another um, almost illicit um, place into municipal bonds. <laughs> that is to say, it flowed, it, it flowed where it wouldn't otherwise flow, into municipal bonds, because municipal bonds were very attractive due to the high marginal tax rate. Mellon didn't like this, and he didn't think the cities needed the Treasury Secretary. Just think of the discussion. The cities really needed this much money. Uh, and maybe they weren't building very productive things with all the money they were getting. So he tried to get up an amendment to the Constitution. There were more of those in those days to ban the special status of the municipal bond. Well, it didn't go over very well, especially with the top marginal rate being in the 70s. So he said, I'm going to address this problem another way. I'm going to reduce the income tax rate so that the relative attractiveness of the municipal bond is, uh, is reduced narrow the spread. And it worked like a charm, if you look at the charts. They did cut the income tax on the theory that lower taxes are better, on the theory they get more money, but also on the theory that people would pay taxes that were more reasonable. So it's an interesting thought process that goes all along through the 20s. And from the 70% top marginal rate, I don't have the chart in front of me, but start with that, down to, the, um, in the end, their top marginal rate was 25% much lower, and sort of permanently so. And a lot of it was uh, not only about economics, but also about establishing political trust. Well, that was one thing that Mellon and Coolidge had in common. Uh, Mellon wanted to cut the taxes because he was the original supply-sider. He thought if taxes were lower, there'd be more investment. Coolidge wanted to cut taxes because he believed, I think, and you know a lot more about Coolidge than I do, he believed that if you starved the government, if there wasn't enough money to run the government, that was a good thing. Well, this is the wonderful thing, I, things I was able to discover in, in, in this story. Mellon was kind of a social scientist. In a way, he was a progressive. He said, I want to do scientific taxation, and I will 
yep. lower the rate and maybe there'll be more activity. I'll get more money. Just like Walmart, you lower the price. He didn't say that because that's anachronism. But imagine just like Walmart, you lower the price, you make up profit on the volume of sales. He used a railroad metaphor. He said, you charge in railroad for toll what the traffic will bear. And if the toll is too high, fewer trains come. If you make it lower, maybe you get more money. That's what we would call supply-side economics. Well, Coolidge was a New Englander, uh, much less interested in numbers and much more cautious in temperament. Temperament matters greatly. And he didn't like this idea at all because, well, what if, uh, he, he, what if you, you cut the rate and you didn't get more money? Well, then you'd have a deficit. And then the money would go to Europe. And you know, where there would be a recession. And, but even worse, what if you did get the money? Just as you, what if you did get that extra money? Well, then the other side would spend it and make the government bigger, which he opposed exactly. Yeah. As he, so he, you imagine someone in agony over this, and he was in agony when he kept seeing the money come in. It was an obscene amount of money, the tax revenues. And he would write it all down, and always the revenues would be a little higher than the president expected. Um, but I, I like uh, watching him because Coolidge also believed in delegation. He believed that his Treasury Secretary, an important you know, sort of Warren Buffett of the era, a very highly regarded financial figure, uh, um, knew what he was doing better than Coolidge, who was a lawyer from Massachusetts. Therefore, in the name of delegation, he went along with Mellon. Very interesting relationship. Jim, uh, do you have any comments on the behavior of the Federal Reserve during this period? Yes, I do. Well, the Federal Reserve, like the income tax, like the flu, was a... (laughs) The Federal Reserve got started in uh, about 100 years ago. 1914 was its first full year of operation, and uh, it was scarcely out of short pants when World War I came, and uh, it uh, financed the war, as central banks do. Um, So come the peace, it, uh, it... hoped it would be allowed to conduct an honest central banking business without subsidizing public finances, Um, and then uh, struck the aforementioned Depression of 1920. And the Fed's conduct during the Depression was most interesting because it was the only episode in the 100 years of operation of our central bank in which the Fed-administered interest rate was higher at the bottom of the slump than it had been in the preceding peak of the boom. So consider uh, what it would be like if instead of lowering rates during a recession, the Fed decided it ought to raise them, which is exactly what it did in 1920 and 21. And if you adjusted the ruling money market interest rate for the collapse in prices, the rates at the time were punitively high. There were upwards of 20% as adjusted so-called real interest rates, 20%. Uh, constricting, strangling, uh, strangling. Um, uh, but paradoxically, most interestingly, uh, the Depression ended. It's not going on today, that Depression, <laughs> um, which is a story in its own right. But the, uh, uh, the, the Fed uh, didn't... Uh, and, and by modern lights, the Fed did a terrible job. They, you, you read... Uh, uh, the historians of the Fed from Milton Friedman on, and they condemn. And, but um, uh, by results, you have to wonder whether 
it didn't work in some mysterious way because uh, uh, the depression of 1920-21 turned out not to be a great depression. It turned out to be a self-healing depression, which is another story. Well, but Mellon was pressing the Federal Reserve to yes. raise interest. No, well, no, no. Mellon was pressing the Federal. The, the, the Harding administration comes in in March of 1921, and the depression had been going on, of course, since January of 1920. So it uh, was what 13 or so, 14 months into. Uh, the slump. So Mellon comes in. Mellon, as as Amity indicated, was uh, a terrifically successful, knowing and uh, uh, intuitive industrialist and financier. He was not just a banker, although he was a banker. He was uh, Alcoa. He was Pittsburgh industry incarnate. And he knew in his bones as well as in his head that interest rates ought to be lower than they were. And he pressed. Then the Secretary of the Treasury was an ex officio member of the Board of Governors of the Fed. So Mellon, in that capacity, used his considerable influence to press uh, the other governors to come along with a program of lower rates and easier money. And that started not soon after Mellon came in 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 March, I think in April and May. Uh, central bank administered interest rates began to fall, and the depression ended, it bottomed in, uh, in July. So Mellon, and, 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 but Truman, in his memoirs, wrongly uh, recalls you know, Mellon, this hard horse, severe, uh, rather unapproachable figure as being the, the symbol of, of, of liquidation and constraint and, uh, and these strangling rates. But on the contrary, Mellon was, in fact, quite sensibly for lower interest rates. Okay, so staying with the thematic consistency of this discussion, leadership is a big issue today. Amity, talk to us a little bit about presidential leadership during the 1920s. Well, it gets to, thank you, it gets to the issue of trust. So remember, uh, 1921, it's Harding Coolidge. And Harding um, was for this, his heart, his brain said, let's cut the government. They also cut the government quite a bit. The Democrats before them, right, let's cut the government. Let's say no to a lot of things. Party plan said, no, no, no. Let's say no to everything. But Harding, uh, by temperament, and temperament matters, is the kind of guy who says yes. And uh, unfortunately, he said yes once too often. He hired his friends all the time. Uh, so he made errors. So, so we had a worthy privatization project that the Reason Foundation would feature on the cover of its magazine today. Western oil reserves of government need to be privatized. And instead of uh, the way he conducted it, however, it ended up not being a worthy casebook privatization project. It ended up being teapot dome. Scandal because friends got favors instead of people benefiting. He did a worse thing vis-a-vis the vets. They were going to build hospitals for the vets. They had quite an expensive plan for that. It was a compromise with the veterans. Remember, the veterans were a much bigger group in that time. There was universal conscription. Remember, too, there were no antibiotics. Uh, And the vets came home in pain and weren't likely to stop being in pain for much of their lives. So they cut this big compromise hospitals for you, and those were corrupt Two and the man Harding put in there ended up in Leavenworth Prison. So, so Harding uh, blew it, and he blew trust. The vets didn't trust the government anymore. The, you know, the, the uh, people knew that rich people kept the oil. That's what Teapot Dome said. And Harding died, I think, of his own inconsistency, very sadly, in the summer of 23 of a kind of stroke. 
And Coolidge comes in, and Coolidge's job, his number one job, he sort of sounds like Lyndon Johnson, is to execute our party program, quote unquote, to perfection. And he kept every cabinet member, even the suspect ones, but he concentrated entirely on serving as a president to build up trust. He thought that trust was very important. And when you look at the Coolidge family, you'll see he was quite dramatic about it. There was everyone went to the Harding White House for what the Washington Post called food and action. They were violating prohibition over there for sure. Coolidge White House was all of a sudden Vermont breakfast, very cold, almost like a church, right? And um, and with the Coolidge family, you know, you've heard of the Roosevelt children riding up the, and down the banisters and bringing their ponies in the White House and so on. Um, that reflected their father's idea that this was his house, bully pulpit. The Coolidge children had to respect the presidency, and when John Coolidge, the son of the president, came in the wrong clothes, um, for dinner, he got sent away to put on his formal clothes because at the White House he wore formal clothes. And when Mrs. Coolidge, uh, you know, this is right down to the family, Mrs. Coolidge uh, wanted to try something new. She wanted to try horseback riding. And Mrs. Coolidge was one of the most beautiful first ladies ever, and she had a great figure. She was the first aerobic first lady. She walked five miles a day. And she puts on this habit and looks awfully fetching, and the president says, you shouldn't do anything You'll do better if you don't do anything new in this job. No pants, no habits. And this sounds to us cold and cruel, but what it was was Coolidge's effort to build up the authority of the office and to show that he was there as a presider, not an autocrat to lead. And I'll just say finally, when he chose not to run again in 28, he could have run again, that too was out of respect for office. Like Lord Acton, he believed power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. And he said from time to time we should change the person in the office, no permanent people, um, because the office is more important uh, than any individual. So awfully conservative, humble attitude, but much liked by the people. Okay, well then, in a good academic sense, compare and contrast Coolidge and Hoover. You, you want to do that, or you want me to do it? No, go ahead, Amity, you go on. Well, well, you know, I've got a whole set of I've got a, um, Well, this is a hilarious story um, uh, of two different temperaments clashing. They're supposed to both be Republicans, right? Hoover, Coolidge, what's the difference? No, I mean, they're huge, enormous difference. Hoover was Mr. Energy. He was the smartest guy in the room. And we know of Hoover. Uh, I, uh, I just did a wonderful show with George Nash, who's his biographer. He was the best paid young man of his generation. He found the gold in the ground through his engineering skill that made the gold standard work. Right? And uh, he, he had an enormous record as a successful philanthropist. He had a sort of salvation complex. He saved Belgium. In World War I, right? He liked to rescue. He went down to the awful flood of the Mississippi in 27 to be the healer um, for the government. And when he came into the presidency, uh, you know, he wanted to run things. Coolidge did not like him. Coolidge called him Wonder Boy. Uh, he said, oh, that man has uh, given me more advice, all of it wrong, by the way. Uh, they, they, Hoover had a really irritating habit, we've all worked in big companies, of butting in in every department. So they said that he was Secretary of Commerce, where uh, Coolidge and, and Harding had placed him because he'd be harmless there. 
right? Um, uh, it, what, what's he going to do? You know, put the fish to bed, right? So, so uh, turn the lights on, right? Um, they said he was secretary at Commerce and undersecretary everywhere else because he butted and he often used the press in an irritating way to get his message through, and um, it, it just came to it came to almost came to blows uh, between Coolidge and Hoover. So, so and 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 another time we can talk about the Hoover presidency, but it's of an entirely different style. So what an impact did this have on the country? Well, not so much. I mean, it was just two guys. Uh, but the, one thing I noticed, if you look at the budget in the 20s, the outstanding fact about Coolidge, if you want to take one thing away with him, today we sometimes hope the government will cut the budget. He actually cut the budget. That is to say, when he left office in 29, the federal budget was actually lower than when he came in. You can look it up in the Tax Foundation or National Account charts. Oh, well, how do he do that? Usually we just reduce the increase. I think I see Dr. Hubbard over there. Um, who you know, worked on reducing the increase uh, in modern administrations. So uh, he actually did it. Um, but the one department that grew in the 20s obnoxiously was commerce. <laughs> and, and if you look at the commerce building architecture, it is a grandiose structure, right? Too big for what it is. Is the federal government supposed to be in charge of commerce anyway, right? It's about private. Um, and that, I'm sure that to shut Hoover up, Coolidge threw him money. <laughs> Easiest way, right? <laughs> okay, Jim. So now we have a good glimpse into the leadership at the, at the presidency. What was it like uh, in the Treasury and the Federal Reserve? I mean, right now, you know, everybody is, was, you know, for uh, Bernanke's uh, period at the Treasury, everybody um, uh, at the Federal Reserve, everybody focused on what the, the Federal Reserve was doing. He was one of the most important people in government. Did the Federal Reserve have that kind of role in the 1920s? Uh, the Federal Reserve in the 20s had, uh, had uh, mixed but on balance terrific press. Uh, you know, the, this institution came into the world in response to what people thought was the uh, costly and, uh, and uh, shaming propensity of America to dissolve into financial crisis. Britain had not had a, a really a bank failure since, um, I don't know, the 1860s or maybe a little later if you count some of the smaller banks. But Britain was, was basically uh, a country that, uh, uh, that got through the day without depositors running on illiquid <laughs> banking institutions. And uh, in America, it happened time and again, and people wanted done with it. In comes the Fed. Um, uh, December 23rd, 1913, the bill is signed, Woodrow Wilson using a gold pen. And uh, uh, one of the big department, well, the drugstore chains runs an ad in the Wall Street Journal, uh, um, Christmas present to the nation. Uh, Federal Reserve, we are through with panics. That was the idea. Um, so comes uh, uh, this depression, 1920, and, uh, and there is no money panic. Now, uh, the price, average prices, fell by no less than 40%. 40%. A huge deflation. Uh, industrial production down 30%. The stock market peaked to trough down almost by half, almost by half. Uh, unemployment, uh, 
a lot. Uh, there was no real accurate uh, taking of uh, soundings of how many people were unemployed, but the, the guesses ran from 2 million to 6 million. <laughs> That's how imprecise the statistics were. So the, the Fed was the new thing. It was, the, it, was, it was there to liquefy, meaning to infuse with cash banks that needed funds but had good collateral. Collateral meaning loans to solvent institutions, banks, farms, uh, other, other you know, operating businesses. Um, so uh, the, the, the Fed was kind of a star, and then the star became a little bit tarnished because uh, uh, of the continuing collapse in prices. Cotton farmers were desolated. Uh, similarly with, uh, uh, with row crop farmers of all kinds. Uh, anyone in the mining business similarly bruised and battered. Um, and people looked up and they saw these towering stratospheric interest rates. Fed, please, would you, would you kindly relent? So the Fed's, uh, the Fed star uh, fell a little. Um, but the Depression ended and the 20s proverbially roared and uh, the Fed star rose again. And by late in the 20s, people were again of the mind that, uh, uh, that given the competent attention of this central bank, uh, there was no chance, really no meaningful chance of another, another 1907 panic. And so people put a lot of store in this institution and in the people who ran it. Benjamin Strong, of course, was the, was the star central banker of the 20s. He died before the, uh, the crisis of 29. Uh, but the, the, the Fed was a very, very big thing in American life. Well, let's go into the second half of the 1920s. The economy was heating up. Uh, there were very low margin requirements uh, in the stock market. The stock market was starting to boil. Um, the, uh, the inequality issue was becoming uh, even more pronounced. Um, these are similarities to what's going on now. Um, did anybody see this coming? Did anybody see the 1930s uh, brewing at that time? Uh, did they think that the good times were going to go on forever? Let me read you, uh, if a witness may refresh his memory with a quick reference. I'm going to read you a quotation from Herbert Hoover's own survey of current business. It was the 100th anniversary of this publication, and it came out um, in 1929. Um, uh, let's see. Um, December 1929, 100th edition of the Survey of Current Business said this, quote, while it may be too early to say that the utilization of business data has entirely eliminated the business cycle, there is agreement today among business leaders everywhere that the wider use of facts will mitigate in a large degree many of the disastrous effects of the one-time recurrent business cycle, close quote. Now, we, we, look, we look at the uh, 20s, I think all of us, in a kind of an anachronous way. We know what happened in the 30s. And knowing that, we look back with a rather jaundiced and cynical and ironic eye on the goings-on of the 20s. But truly, I mean, uh, 
if you if there's there's a there's a book there was a book produced by Hoover again this uh, in 1929 it was called uh, Recent Economic Changes and it was 2,000 pages of facts figures and narrative of the prosperity of the 20s. I mean these people were not imagining that this was some era. Uh, the cost of living rose by less than 1% a year on average. Wages were up on average by almost 3%. Real wages rose. I'm not sure if you mentioned inequality. I don't think this was an issue in the 20s. People were rising in their merits. Growth was booming. One of the quotations in this book is, so, uh, is to me, so uh, illuminating as to the spirit of the times, as, to be sure, filtered through the well-to-do and the intellectually respectable who produce such narratives. But here is a report on, on what foreign visitors thought when they came to America in the mid-20s. The, the, the two words that are in quotation marks I find just thrilling. The foreigners invariably remarked on what the authors of this book called the, quote, indomitable hopefulness of Americans. Isn't that great? It's great. <laughs> so what was the mood I, in the White House? Well, I, I want to question, if I may, the, the premise of your question. Okay. I, I think what we were hearing was, did they know in the 20s that they would be followed by all this and maybe, maybe there was some causality there? I don't find evidence um, that the 20s were so bad that they required... A ten-year Great Depression. There is evidence that the twenties were so bad they required a severe market crash in 1929, and there was there is even evidence internationally um, that we had to have a bad contraction and we made a bunch of errors, policy errors. Um, but the errors, um, when you start to get to 33, 34, 35, 30, every year there is a different reason that the recovery chooses to stay away. It's not because of what Andrew Mellon said to Calvin Coolidge. Um, and in the histories we first read when we were younger, say John Kenneth Galbraith, you, you get that feeling. There's almost no evidence that the whole of 20s policies was so awful and so Gatsby-like um, that the 30s were necessary. And I, I, I just want to add one thing. I think the Gatsby films definitely reinforced this idea. It was all a champagne bubble, wasn't it? Well, you want to remember some facts about Gatsby. Gatsby was written about Jim's depression because Gatsby was written in the early 20s. It was published in 25. That was the bubble that F. Scott Fitzgerald had in mind. And when, um, say, a film producer brings in a 1929 car and writes um, a caption voice that says, says it's all about 29, he's being anachronistic with Fitzgerald. Uh, so so uh, you want to be careful. It, it, you know, look at it in Coolidge's lifetime. Uh, Coolidge became uh, an adult graduating from Amherst College in 95, which is about when the Dow Jones Industrial Average started, when it came online. And he saw multiple crashes in his adulthood as a young politician or attorney, including 1907, but others where the market went down 50, I mean, as much, I think, as 50%. You can... Look, I was just all the time, 40%. And, and there was never any giant 10-year depression after that. So you want to ask yourself, what is it about 29 that made the severity of the early 30s? And was it really causing the entire 30s? Right. It, it, was, it was in good part um, uh, the well-intended uh, attempt by the Hoover administration to prevent 
a depression that I think, and I think Amity might agree with some of this, that uh, put the depth and indeed the greatness into the Great Depression so far as the American experience is concerned. Uh, Hoover was, uh, you know, the, first of all, the, the, the Depression of 1920 and 21 uh, was basically a Woodrow Wilson production. And Woodrow Wilson presided over it, but he, he presided over it in a most passive way. He was incapacitated. Um, he had suffered a stroke, and his administration, too, was... Uh, uh, was incapacitated, and inadvertently he presided over the last laissez-faire depression in America. The government met uh, the very severe conditions of 1920 and 21 by balancing the budget and, through the Fed, by raising interest rates. Um, but it ended, and the recovery in 1922 on was wonderfully dynamic. I mean, there, was a, there were labor shortages reported in Detroit by late 1921, that is three or four months after the official trough. Uh, wages fell along with prices, business profits recovered quickly, and uh, a liquidated market became the magnet for opportunistic capital, and it was a terrific whoosh to the upside. Okay, so fast forward eight or nine years, Herbert Hoover, as Amity says, the assistant secretary of everything, sees these thunderheads. Hoover was bearish in the stock market. He saw it coming. Uh, what to do after the market crashed? Well, Hoover convened meetings. He wanted America's business leaders to pledge that unlike 1920 and 21, they would not cut wages. But prices fell nonetheless. Wages remained up and profit margins vanished. There is an economist that Amity and I both are fans of called Lee Ohanian, who was out in UCLA, I think, and he consults, although not frequently enough, with the Federal Reserve. And uh, there wasn't, you know, wrong-headed thinking wasn't exclusive to the presidency. I mean, there were, I think, margin requirements were five percent at the time. You know, they, you know, I, I find a striking parallel between uh, Federal Reserve policy. Uh, before the 2008-9 uh, collapse and the Great Depression. Uh, the Federal Reserve had enormous power to restrain bank leverage, uh, to be m much more disciplined in terms of what you could loan money, loaning money to people who were buying houses irresponsibly. And the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan took virtually no action on that, and they could have. But you know what's the essential difference to me, uh, Byron, is that uh, uh, margin requirements, yeah, were like 10% in 1929, and, and the, the Fed could have raised margin requirements, uh, certainly in the current regime. I'm not sure it could have legally in 1929. But what was, what was essentially different in the 20s about American finance was the absence of this institution of the socialization of risk. I mean, with deposit insurance as a first policy thrust and then subsequently with all manner of, of federal support for the likes of Citicorp and, uh, and all the rest of them, uh, the government uh, came to sit by the elbow of our bankers and presently it uh, moved in and has virtually become partners. If you walk into, if you walk into one of these uh, too-big-to-fail banks today, you're not sure who was the paid help and who are the federal minders. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of people working inside these banks. It's like the marine detachments in American embassies. Like, who owns what? Uh, 
There was no such assurance in the 20s. On the contrary, there was, there was every assurance that the owners of the banks owned the problem. There was something called the, the double liability rule. If you were a stockholder of a nationally chartered bank and that bank became impaired or insolvent, you, the owner, got a capital call. It was your bank, right? You got the dividends. You owned the problem to the downside. So that went away in the mid-30s with the banking, various banking acts under the New Deal. But the absence of the socialization of risk, to me, was the, is the... And of course, in the absence of taxpayer support of a bank, banks, bankers behaved differently. They, they, they insisted on liquid assets. They funded themselves more conservatively. They ran capital-to-asset ratios much higher than the present. Morgan Stanley shows up to work in 2006 and 7, leveraged 40-40 to 1. I mean, what has to go wrong for that not to work? Like, nothing, right? <laughs> Amity, you want to pile well, on there? Uh, oh, it, it, it's related, but it's not the same. Um, I mean, uh, one thing uh, Jim has worked on, uh, and that uh, you think about the myths you have of this period. What Mellon was evil because what did he say? Like, like the wicked witch of the West, liquidate, liquidate, right? And mm-hmm. and that's portrayed as evil evil um, because it's selling something when its price might be very low. But what's behind that is a a very legitimate uh, method, which is let the prices clear so you know what they are. Once the market knows what prices are, then it can trade again. And when it's not certain about prices, well, it might hesitate. And one of the great criticisms or or suspicions many of us have about the current period and the the weak quality of the recession for a long time was nobody knows what the price of a house is, right? Because it's still got 14 subsidies sideways. Nobody knows what it will be tomorrow. Nobody knows um, what the interest rate will be because that price isn't clearing either. It's deeply politicized. Then the interest rate was less politicized because it was pegged to gold. So, So that idea tended to work. Um, whether it was the downturn of 1907 or the downturn of 2021, it was brutal. The market cleared. People lost their shirt. It was their fault. It was terrible. But it, it, then the market recovered pretty fast. Let me t- let me, may I, uh, may uh, and, I tell Tim Byron and the in- investors in the audience with a, a glimpse at the bargains on offer at the lows in 1921? Okay. Yeah. Uh, some of the some of the, the the industrial cyclicals, as you might expect, got cheap. I mean, General Motors uh, uh, was at uh, three and a half times forward earnings at the at the lows. But what is most striking is how the consumer companies were valued during the liquidation at the worst of the liquidation. Um, uh, Coca Cola, uh, there were exactly half a million shares outstanding. Very new company, but not so new as to, as to not show its, its prospects and its possibilities. It was known to be a fabulous enterprise. It was valued at the lows at would, what would prove to be 1.7 times 1922 earnings and 2.5 times 1923 earnings, and the shares paid a dividend of five and a quarter. Gillette, safety razor company, which had sold as many razors and blades in 1921 as it had in 1920, as it had in 1919, was quoted a little bit more than five times forward earnings. It yielded nine and a quarter percent. A radio corporation of America, not yet revealed as the great growth stock of the 20s, was on offer in the market uh, for about as much as it would earn in 1923, a dollar and a half. So that's what a market looks like when it's not... uh, 
uh, federally manicured. Well, we're, get, we're getting toward the end here. And so after listening to both of you um, during the last hour, um, I'm, I'm a little disturbed that nobody saw the 1930s coming. Nobody thought that it was important to take remedial action until it was probably too late. I know Mellon pushed the Federal Reserve to raise, I guess they raised interest rates of 5% in, 19, in August 28, and then they uh, pushed them to 6%. But it was kind of too late to do anything. But nobody had any inkling of what was likely to happen. And that's sort of where we are now. Well, what happened in the 30s did happen. Um, and so uh, in your final comments, is what we're seeing now similar to that period in any respect? In other words, should we be apprehensive that uh, the next 10 years could be much more difficult uh, than the last 10 years have been, or the last five years have been? I'm thinking Byron said the, the interest rate uh, was at way too low at 5%. Therefore, they had a terrible crash in Byron's laying out of it. No, no, I'm, I'm saying that was too late to do Right, or too late. So what, what uh, are we too late? And um, how high does our interest rate have to go to preclude in this, in this argument 10 years of downturn? What we see now that is like the Great Depression, um, in my view, uh, is not the market bubble. It's the social policy. And that would be the 19- Hoover, who was quite a social redistributor, and then, of course, the Roosevelt administrations and the New Deal. And in that period, through large interventions in the economy, the government scared off business and recovery. The economy didn't get back to where it had been before the crash of 29 in the decades, neither in employment nor in the Dow. So that I... I am quite concerned about an expansion of the federal government. Um, In addition, even worse, is the budget where we are, because they were never that bad in the 30s in terms of the debt or the deficit. Um, Well, not debt, let's say debt. So, So that idea that social redistribution will bring recovery is a fallacy. It was a fallacy that hurt us in the 30s. And, and if anything uh, makes our decade dark, that would be that idea. Okay, Jim, do you want to have any comments? There, is I there would anything? like to welcome, I, I, I think that Emily's remarks were terrific, and I think it's high time for the audience to chime in question or two. Oh, all right, so that's an answer. Is it too late? So you're not worried. Well, no, I, I am, I am um, worried. But one is always, I mean, let, I, I, okay, I, I, will, I will vouchsafe this thought with respect to the future about which I'm a leading authority on not knowing. Um, <laughs> I think that America, like Major League Baseball, is basically indestructible. And that, uh, you know, try as they might, they can't and they won't. And I come back to uh, the essential spirit of what they called indomitable hopefulness. And I, I mean, one sees all manner of, of policy errors. If you live in the city of New York, you see another crop. Um, <laughs> even on the Upper West Side, people are beginning to see some policy errors. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Byron, in the War of 1812, the uh, government didn't have the money to buy stationery. Uh, So we've been through worse than this, and we have certainly been through better. But uh, um, I think uh, 
it's going to be fine in about oh, uh, a few years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, I, I, I think uh, this issue can be pressed further, but let's press it further. <laughs> let's press it further during the question and answer period. I think there are microphones set up in both aisles, the left and right. It's hard for me to see uh, whether anybody's lined up there or not. But if you have a question, uh, approach the microphone, and uh, I'll try to move from side to side, and we'll do the best we can to answer the question. If it's uh, for, if it's a general question, and you don't care who answers it, um, state it. But if you have a specific person you're interested in hearing his or her views, uh, state that as well. Okay, let's start on this side. What yeah. role did radio play in the economy and the culture, and was it similar to computerization in the 90s, the effect on the economy? Yes, the radio. Um, uh, the, the book I mentioned, The Survey of the 20s, was very keen on the radio as uh, as a, as a major uh, contributor to the improvement of American life. And here is a, a sighting uh, from the, uh, uh, the end of the decade. It said, uh, did this book, it said that, um, let's see, uh, uh, there are, in 1928, January 1st, 1928, there were seven and one-half million radio sets in use, radio sets is how they put it, yet, yet, about 70%, 70% of American homes are still without the radio. And here is the, the following quote, sir. It says, quote, we seem only to have touched the fringe of our potentialities. So uh, radio, whatever its, its significance as a medium of, of cultural communication, was also a symbol of, of what people were beginning to call the second industrial revolution. Not only was it here, not only was RCA on the verge of a fabulous, by then it was in manifest, uh, growth, great growth stock, but uh, also radio was a reminder of how much still could happen. Well, well, you think it, this is very much analogous to the 90s and the Internet, especially as regards uh, stock values. Um, you, you read Radio Corp was so overpriced, right? It was one of the famous ones that was overpriced in 29. I think it's in John Kenneth Galbraith, but as Jim says... Some radio companies, including Radio Corp, had an idea that would later become television or more radios, and, and that idea was indeed profitable and worthy of investment. They just didn't have it in 29. It's very hard when there's a great technology innovation to gauge how much productivity and profit will come from it and, and at what stage. Right. And the stock market, of course, will go up a lot when that happens. That's one of the things that happened with the Internet. Trying to figure out is Google worth something or nothing, ditto Facebook. So, so, uh, so that is part of the frothiness of the late 20s and the frothy... What's our invention now, though? What Ray DeVoe tells the story of... Uh, he yeah. was working in a brokerage having Spencer Trask in the mid-60s, and some guy walks in, uh, a stranger walks in, and he has a, a, a package under his arm, and he says, uh, this is uh, my stock in RCA. I finally broke even. <laughs> <laughs> okay, from the other side. Right. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the fruitful... Uh, seminar. Uh, my name is Lee, and uh, I, my opinion is that, or my question is, what 
did isolationism play during that period of time in, uh, in leading up to the Depression? My opinion is that it, it did affect, uh, affect us a lot. Uh, what do you think of that, uh, of isolationism? I'm not, I'm not sure that we were so isolated. The, the League of Nations was a, the most contentious political topic of the, of the late teens and early 20s. Uh, it, it poisoned American politics. But I think that um, America was increasingly uh, knit into the world in other ways. Uh, in finance, for example, America was uh, uh, quickly in the 20s took over the role that London had played as a center of world finance. And uh, by the late 20s, for good or ill, you find the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, throwing its weight behind lower interest rates to facilitate Britain's adjustment to the post-war world. And some historians, namely Murray Rothbard, or especially Murray Rothbard, contend uh, that the, the Fed's uh, uh, subordination of American interest to European interest was a direct cause of the of the uh, financial troubles that finally uh, came to the fore in 29 and 30. So I, I'm not sh- I'm, I think politically the, there was you know, the contention over the, the war debt uh, over the League of Nations. That was audible, but I think uh, as important and rather inaudible was America's uh, complete integration financially, certainly, and economically as well with the rest of the world. One of the things I discovered uh, in the Coolidge story was how many foreigners came to the White House for dinner. It was one week it was the Queen of Romania, the next week it was uh, Prince of Wales and so on. And uh, the Coolidge's weren't always ready for that. Um, after their, one of their sons died, they didn't feel like hosting anyone, especially the remaining child, John, didn't feel like being a host at the White House. But the White House usher said, well, he may be the Prince of Wales, but you are the Prince of Plymouth, Vermont, where he came from. You have, you have to do this. And uh, when you delve down, why were all the foreign kings and queens coming? They were coming to get refinanced. And we were doing that. We were lowering their interest rate through, through Mellon's policy. So I would underscore what Jim is saying. We were trying very hard to help them not go belly up those European governments so that the fascists wouldn't take over, right? Basically, that was what Mellon thought he was doing, precluding disaster by giving easier terms to, to Europeans. Um, that's very important to remember. Uh, they thought that their e- easier policy was there to help Europe. Well, I think that that's a key thing. I mean, during, the <clears throat> during that period, America was becoming the leader, the economic leader of the free world. Uh, it, Europe viewed America as sort of a second-class citizen prior to that. And so America really ascended to a position of supremacy at the, at, at, on the brink of, of probably the worst period, economic period uh, in its history. Jim, do you have any comments on that? Uh, nope. Okay. Go, go, let's go uh, Jim to the other Pucinich, side. I'm a docent here. My question deals with Herbert Hoover. He, he was considered by many to be one of the smartest of American presidents. He was Secretary of Commerce and Under Secretary of Everything, as you said. Uh, yet in 1929, when the government ran a deficit, he started 1930 by raising taxes and probably exacerbating the economic conditions. Was he too married to 19th century economic policy to, to be in that position? 
Well, to my mind, he was not sufficiently married to 19th century uh, policy in the specific sense of, of letting markets um, adjust. He, he had a, a very 20th century view, again, sir, in my opinion, it might not be the right one, but in my opinion, where he went wrong was, uh, uh, was giving full vent to his meddlesome ways. Uh, he, he was a, a Batinsky, uh, and, and, and this found expression um, in his policies immediately after 1929. He, again, he insisted, insofar as the president could insist and make that stick, that the country's leading industrialists set an example by not cutting wages. Now, that sounds like the good and humanitarian thing to do. International Harvester in 1920 had instituted about a 35% wage cut. And guys were saying, God, I could starve by not working. Why do I have to starve while working? Um, but uh, wages adjusted with prices, profit margins were restored, and recovery ensued powerfully in 1922 and beyond. Fast forward to 1929, uh, Wages did not adjust. Profit margins remained depressed. There was, as Amity so well documented in The Forgotten Man, there was this fear of uh, all manner of political difficulties that froze investment and froze action. And it all started with Hoover. People talked about the, in subsequent, looking back on the Hoover administration, they called it the first New Deal. So, and, and not so concise an answer to your question, I, I would say that. Uh, uh, a little heavier dose of the 19th century would have served all of us better. Well, you just want to remember that um, we, can't, you can, we can't be too presentist, as they say. Hoover was not a supply-sider, and he was not a Keynesian either. Both might argue for tax cuts to get growth. But there was a logic to his decision to raise taxes, as unfortunate as it was, which is he didn't want all the gold of America to go over to Europe and force a deep contraction on the U.S. When the gold goes away in a gold standard system, that can force a contraction on a country, a worse recession. So he was following that logic. Um, he, uh, he, Coolidge was not a neocon, he didn't like intervention, so he wasn't an isolationist, but he did do a, a large international treaty because he believed in international law, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which we mock. And I'm not sure we, we really would if we, we went back and looked at it. So, so to the narrow, I agree with Jim on the narrow question, and I don't think the taxes were the worst part of it. It was, I, Jim and I are, are both coming to the view that the labor was incredibly important. When you walk away um, and say, what's new in economics? For me, what was new when I wrote these books was the labor price mattered a lot. And when you force employers to raise wages, they do lay people off. And when you don't force them to raise wages, they lower wages. And it, as, as sad as it was at International Harvester, it's always better to have a job that's less well-paid than no job, or to have a rigidity so that you can't pre penetrate into the working area. So, so I would say that's the worst of Hoover, not the tax as unhappy as it makes the Wall Street Journal. So let's, <laughs> let's fast forward into to contemporary times. We're talking now about raising the minimum wage. Right. We have 7.6% of the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 6.6% of the population Unemployed. We have 13% of uh, the population yeah, partially employed with a part-time job that would like a full-time job. Is it the right thing? 
I mean, aren't we have, don't we have a parallel circumstance now where we're talking about raising the minimum wage to over $10 at a time when we have so many people unemployed? We're trying to control uh, the compensation of workers at a time when we're also trying to put more people on the payrolls. Isn't this going to have a counterproductive effect? Jim? Yes. Uh, uh, I, uh, the great uh, Frederick Bastiat was a, a French economist of uh, uh, 19th century. And um, uh, he had a, a, uh, an idea that uh, uh, he said, that which is seen, that which is unseen. I'm going to read you a, a couple of sentences of Bastia that speaks to such well-intended policies as the higher minimum wage. Quote, in the economy, an act, a habit, an institution, a law, gives birth not only to an effect, but to a series of effects. Of these effects, the first only is immediate. It manifests itself simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The others unfold in succession. They are not seen. It is well for us if they are foreseen. So the minimum wage, it, it sounds great. Why not, why should people laboring or shoveling snow at LaGuardia Airport not earn enough money to live on? Let's give, let's give them a raise. Let's have a minimum wage at which people can, can live with dignity. That's good. That sounds good. But that is what is seen. What is unseen the succession of effects after the imposition of the wage. And especially deleterious are these ideas of these policies in an economy that is stagnant, or largely, 2% in America, I say is stagnant. So the underlying problem to me is not the minimum wage, it's, it's the lack of dynamism. When you have a growing economy, a minimum wage job is the first job. It lasts a year, two years, six months. It's, it's a stepping stone. It teaches you how to work. It teaches you how to show up to work in the morning and how to operate within an organization. It's temporary. The trouble lies with a permanent minimum wage job, and that is not the problem of a minimum wage. That's the problem with, with ossification. It's the problem with, with no growth and, and, and with a fear of no growth for a long time. Emily, you want to chime in on this? It, well, it, you just want to look at it as a whole. What makes it expensive to hire someone or hard? Will I hire? So beyond the minimum wage, it might be a rule or a mandate. One said that uh, we wrote an editorial, uh, actually at the journal, where I, um, I, I see Mrs. Bartley in the room, uh, where it was called the 49th job because there was some rule or other that, that affected the way you employ at 50. And it was about companies that always only employed up to 49 for that reason. And we all, we all do this um, now individually. Uh, and it's not just because we're selfish. It's because we're trying to keep our company alive. So it's, it's not just the wage, which is the headline. It's also the rules that go along with employment that can impede recovery. Okay. Over here. question. Of what effect did the Dawes Act have regarding international trade and dealing with the problems of reparations with Germany? And how did, and how did such an act affect the American economy throughout the 1920s? In a most cowardly way, Amity Schles is telling me I should answer this. I haven't got a clue. We haven't got a clue. <laughs> we don't know. I'm sorry. So your, your question is much more erudite than my... So that's the law that made the Dawes Plan? Dawes Plan. Dawes Plan, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I know that it was an act intended to 
to smooth out the payment schedule for foreign debts. But beyond, I mean, I, this is not even a, a halfway decent description, but um, if you give me about two or three days, I'm going to get back with an answer. <laughs> but, but thank you. <laughs> okay. She's over here. Uh, wasn't, wasn't agriculture a much more important part of the economy in the 20s? And uh, did the agricultural recession or depression of that era have uh, follow-on effects or uh, in, increase the instability of that period? Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, uh, I think everyone in America, uh, 1920, for example, was a farmer or knew one. Um, uh, agriculture was no longer the dominant industry in America, but it was a substantial secondary industry. I've forgotten the, the percentages now, but it must have been in the order of 15% or so, or 20% of GDP. Um, and uh, commodity prices collapsed uh, in the deflation, and they remained low in good part thanks to the mechanization of agriculture that was part and parcel of the internal combustion revolution that brought us the automobile. Uh, so uh, the, the new thing under the sun in the 20s was the uh, was the farmer businessman, uh, the mechanized farmer, uh, much more uh, productive, much more efficient. Uh, in consequence, the agricultural sector shrank in, in many ways, and not least in, uh, uh, in the um, uh, troubles that were visited upon very small country banks in farming districts that, uh, that failed in, in, in large numbers during the 20s in the midst of an overall uh, bout of prosperity in urban America. So I, it was, it was the, the farming sector was, was, uh, was in, its, in its very efficiency became a source of social difficulty and of economic drag for people involved in it. Emily, you want to comment on that? Uh, if you would go and, and teach it at a university, you'd, you'd uh, say all the things that Jim Grant said, but you'd add um, a little bit of focus on unit banking which is it's a it's a it's a wonderful life there's a town bank it has no other friends uh it's dependent on one industry agriculture uh, and it fails when bad news comes from out east when money's tight when the crop fails and politicians made the unit banks there was a rule that said they couldn't be in some great chain or network right we we, we live we, um and gradually that became undone but not in the 20s they, d they just weren't part of a, a system. So when we teach it, we correlate where are their unit banks, and you can see that farms fail there. Their bank fails with them. Everybody goes down together. That's a, a policy change you could have. I think that this whole situation, minimum wage situation uh, has to be understood in the context of where American business is today. When we had the, re the recession of 2008-09, um, the, uh, the corporations began to pull out of it with a lot of cash on their balance sheet. They, they used that cash on their balance sheet, especially manufacturers, to uh, buy capital equipment that allowed them to get the goods and services out the door with fewer workers. Um, can robotic equipment and other labor-saving devices uh, were used. It was just easier to buy a piece of equipment than it was to hire a worker back. Uh, 
So that's sort of the what, what we're going through with American business right now, and we're talking about raising the minimum wage in the face of that. Well, that's one of the unintended consequences of ultra-low interest rates is that the capital is being substituted for right. labor. Okay, over here. Thank you. I'm curious about one social change that occurred in the 1920s that hasn't been mentioned at all. Uh, and maybe it had no impact, but I'd be curious about your opinion. And that's the um, women's suffrage. The electorate dramatically expanded during the 1920s because women got the right to vote in national elections. Uh, and they also began to enter the paid labor force during that decade in some numbers. And I'm curious to know whether you think that that had any impact at all on the overall development of the economy. Either of you. So, so you, Amity. No, oh, it's, so, it's so me, right? <laughs> I, I, I think it was good. Uh, if you, if, <laughs> you want to go further? No, or? no. <laughs> there's a wonderful article, there's a wonderful complaining article by a math major <laughs> who is married to a smart guy. Uh, she wrote an article in the New Republic about how she ever ended up being a housewife. How did it happen? One day she was sitting in her happy seminar, and the next year she was a housewife with a baby because she got married, and all the things she had to do, she just couldn't believe it. The washing alone, all morning it was washing, and in the afternoon the iron and the fire and steaming and getting burned, and the baby might get burned. What hell she was in, a smart girl who ended up being married. And what she was doing was writing an article about uh, a home keeping pre-electricity. And then so, so all these things came in, and of course they could go out. And uh, you know, you could, women, um, because of World War One, and because women had to fill jobs, men were away. We we learned women could drive. That's wonderful. Uh, Coolidge didn't really think women should drive, but but they could, and uh, and they did. So that was a great freedom. Um, and, and I think it's quite important in terms of creativity to have that input from women, but I don't have data for you. <laughs> Jim? Oh, no, I think Emily said it very well. <laughs> That's about as hard as a doll's plan. <laughs> okay, is there anyone over there? Yeah. Hi. Yes. Go well, ahead. Uh, yes, question. Uh, the... Uh, and the first lady who spoke asked about how did radio affect the economy at the time. Uh, I have a lot of questions, but I'll just make it very short. Now, it seems that everything is interrelated. The internet, even cybersecurity, we could, our banking system could go if we have problems as far as cybersecurity is concerned. Yes, I see that things are very similar. Uh, you know, you can draw comparisons, but now my question is, how dangerous is it really? Because we are so interconnected. I can buy stock at Fidelity, and I do. I don't need a broker. Uh, you know, and as far as um, social change, it's changing everywhere, here and abroad. And you know, as much as we were the same, the problems seem to be larger now. And what's okay. your thought? <laughs> Well, I, I, I would say, ma'am, that uh, the problems always seem large. And uh, I'm not sure if we are more beset today with uh, the difficulties arising from our very own ingenuity than were our forefathers and foremothers. I, um, I, 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 um, the doctors in the uh, late teens and 20s uh, had uh, a lot to cope with in the great uh, 
influenza pandemic. And they, um, I see my wife, the physician, sitting right, she's going to prompt me. But uh, one of the medical journals talked about uh, the automobile. And they, and they, they coined uh, a medical term to describe fatalities on the highway. Uh, bacillus automobilis. Was a, <laughs> anyway, so th there, was a, there was a terrific uh, uh, apprehension about the uh, destruction that this thing would wreak on our lives. So I, uh, and I, and I recall in my work on uh, Thomas B. Reed, a speaker of the House in the late 19th century, or, that, that, that there were similar, many similar apprehensions concerning the, the innovations of that day. So I, I uh, and I, I grew up, I, I think Amity did not grow up as young as she is, but I grew up um, in the, as a, a schoolboy in the 1950s in Long Island with duck and cover. The Russians are going to nuke us, and we had to climb under our desks, and that was a source of apprehension. I, I, I think that every age has its own, and ours probably are not much different than for the ones that preceded them. Okay. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the things contributing, or at least uh, leading up to the crash, was the country's distrust of President Harding and his administration. Right? Did I hear that correctly? Uh, which crash, sir? It was, uh, it was the uh, teapot dome you mentioned, because he put all his... Well, uh, that, that, that uh, came after the, the, the depression that I mentioned uh, began in 19, January 1920. That was an election year, and Woodrow Wilson was still in office. Right. And uh, the official trough was in July of 1921, and the Harding administration was only three or four months old. So Harding um, had nothing to do with the onset of the depression, and uh, I'm not sure how much he did with the, do with the, with the recovery from it, but he's certainly not to blame for it. Oh, no, I, I thought you mentioned it in your... I probably no, did. I was, I, in that case, no, I, was no, I, I mentioned that Harding hurt political trust. Yes. But he did not... I, I don't have much evidence he hurt the economy. Okay. Or that that erosion of political trust in that instance hurt the economy. So, he, so you wouldn't compare that with today's situation where it's safe to say the country distrust the administration and the president, well, including, yeah. very importantly, the IRS situation. Right. Well, here's where the, um, trust matters. If you want to undertake difficult legislation, such as Social Security reform, Medicare reform, if you want to veto veterans who are in pain, you need the trust of the polity. And so Harding was unable, had he lived, this is a counterfactual, had he lived, he would have been unable to do some things he wanted to do. Continue to cut tax rates was a plan for his party. He didn't know if he could do it because he didn't have political trust and he was mired in scandal. So, so it's related in that way. Coolidge was able to promulgate or veto as he chose, and some of what us would argue that was to the benefit of the country because he had trust, but it's not so direct. Is what you're getting at uh, the Affordable Care Act? And, uh, well, <laughs> well, what is it you want that? To... But as important is the IRS oh. because we're talking about the crash. So the, the IRS didn't cause the IRS was a subject. It didn't cause the crash. It was the subject of incredible political controversy in the 20s. And there, I discovered this in writing in researching yeah. Coolidge. It, the, 
the tax cutters really wanted a tax cut, but the progressives really didn't want to give it to them, right? It, w it was just like now. So one of the things they had to trade to get their tax cut was that the tax returns of individuals could be put on the wall at the post office. That, that was legal. And that gave all the news reporters material, Mr. Ween's return. Da -da -da -da. And, and so, yes, it was great, subject of, of great controversy, but why do you think the IRS caused the crash? No, I didn't say they caused the crash. I was trying to, as uh, Byron was saying, if you can equate it to today with the distrust of the administration, I mean, we're, because you are both knowledgeable, I'd like to know. Do you see any connection with that? Well, the, it just is, What could happen now? What, what could happen is we will yeah. fail to... You, Social Security is something that can be reformed in one afternoon. And most of us would agree to the terms. Well, uh, let's make everyone get what his older brother got, adjusted for inflation. That's a good share of it. Let's have some very... Highly educated immigrants pay a little money when they come in and work for Google. Done. It's not hard to do. You can even grandfather poor people so they get money under the old system. Because of the absence of political trust, because the Republican Party poses too much with privatization, because the Democratic Party uh, treats Social Security like a holy cow, we don't reform this, this important program. It, does that solve our whole fiscal problem? Of course not at all. Social Security is minor relative to Medicare and so on. However, it would be an enormous trust builder in itself if we did agree on a Social Security reform. So the absence of trust is keeping our economy hostage. We, I do believe that. Maybe Jim doesn't. No, I, I mean, That's a good Keeping example. our economy hostage and it's keeping the government immobile. Yeah. I think we have time for one more. Is there one over there? Right. Question from Mr. Grant. You mentioned and you emphasized that t today we have socialized risk much more than, than risk was socialized 90 years ago. I'm surprised that you're not emphasizing more that today we do not have a gold standard, but 90 years ago we did. Should we emphasize more the effects on the economy of not having the gold standard? Well, I... <laughs> uh, we only had a 90-minute program. So. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, I happen to think that uh, uh, that the current monetary regime, which is an imp improvisational situation, you know, we call it grants. We call it the PhD standard. Um, uh, very smart people sit around uh, and uh, decide what should happen with respect to the all-important level of interest rates. Now, this is a, to me, this is a huge anachronism. Uh, this is command and control. Uh, the social uh, media, for example, are all about collaboration. So to me, this is kind of Romania, 1954, this thing with the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee. So you ask about the gold standard. The gold standard is, is a decentralized, um, market-driven monetary regime. And yes, I am for it. And um, if given two or three hours, I could hold forth, but we are constrained. But thank you for the question. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe it. I thought my career would last longer than the gold standard question, but I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, we're going to conclude there. I want to thank Jim and Amity. Thanks very much to all of you for coming. <laughs>